Well, friends, this morning, I want to ask you if you, any of you have a story, a movie, a book, some, some narrative um, that you have encountered that has changed meaning for you as you got older, maybe, or as you uh, watched it many times or read it many times. Is there a story that you can think of that changed meaning the more that you encountered it? If you have something that comes to mind, I want you to put it into the chat. <laughs> um, there's something that you can think of, a story, a movie, like uh, as you encountered it more times, it changed meaning. I'll let folks put things in the chat um, and I will share one that, that came to mind for me. Um, Liz, you can go to this next slide. I don't know how many of you have seen this movie, Finding Nemo, <laughs> uh, and I love Pixar. I love Pixar movies, um, and I've always, like, really enjoyed Finding Nemo, um, <laughs> but I still remember the very first time that one of my friends mentioned to me that Finding Nemo is actually a story about disability, that if you think about every single character in the movie, they have some kind of either physical disability or some kind of impairment or some kind of difference. Um, Nemo has his fin. Pearl has a shorter tentacle. Gil has a facial deformity. Bubble has multiple personalities. Jacques has kind of a form of OCD. Dory has memory loss. Sheldon has a water allergy. <laughs> Marlin, the father, has anxiety. Um, Destiny, the shark, has a visual impairment. <laughs> Um, the list goes on and on. If you think about all the characters in this story and you watch it um, through the lens of disability, you might notice and start to realize like, oh, all of the characters in this movie have some kind of disability. Um, and that definitely changed the way that I experienced uh, the movie to some extent. And um, I give this example, I'm just seeing, I see Steph put Toy Story 1. I'm like, I need more elaboration on that. <laughs> um, and I'm curious what, if there's any other stories that come to mind for folks. Um, but, you know, it's always interesting when you experience something for the first time or you kind of have one lens for looking at or experiencing something. And then you get a new lens. You, you see things from a different angle or perspective. And it transforms the way that you experience the whole thing. And I encourage you the next time you watch Finding Nemo just to pay attention. And um, I've heard, uh, I haven't, I don't really remember Finding Dory that much, but I've heard that there's a lot of analysis um, on Finding Dory and its engagement with disability as well. Um, but I, I'm not talking about disability today, but I give this example um, just because I was thinking about parables and we've been in this sermon series on parables for the summer. And I've mentioned this before that in many ways we picked this sermon series. We're like, oh, parables, they're so easy to preach. They these contain stories with clear meaning. <laughs> we'll have this easy summer series. And each time that um, I think the preachers have come to these, these texts and sort of uh, looked at parables in in with different uh, lenses, uh, the meanings have changed for us. And this week, I will confess that I was stuck on which parable to preach on. And I chose Matthew 20 um, with a certain perspective that I read this parable with in mind. And as I prepped and as I researched and as I kind of was doing work to prepare for this sermon, um, my my perspective changed. And uh, I originally picked this parable, like seeing it from one angle. And as I 
actually wrote this sermon, I realized I'm taking a different perspective or seeing it from a different angle this time. And, and that's okay because parables are multidimensional. Their meanings are multivalent. There's the possibility of different interpretations with these stories, um, and that's okay. But I'm going to take you on a journey of my wrestling with this, this tricky parable in Matthew 20. <laughs> um, and I hope that we might be challenged to think about uh, this parable in a new light this morning. Is that all right? Um, oh, gosh, I see more things in the chat now. Fun stuff. Um, but as we as we come to Matthew 20, um, I just want to note the context that this parable uh, lies within. And this this parable actually comes right after Matthew 19, where Jesus has this famous conversation. Many of you probably heard this encounter with Jesus and this rich man in which he invites the man to sell all his possessions to the poor and says these sort of famous words. Um, Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Um, and so there's already this discourse about money, about riches, about the kingdom uh, before this section. And, and we've talked a little bit about uh, parables being subversive before. And in chapter 19, we're seeing the ways that Jesus is subverting expectations of the rich, the, the powerful, um, inviting his disciples into a different economy, a different way of being. And he's really continuing this message of reversal, particularly around money, all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but so we have to read Matthew 20, this parable of the vineyard and the vineyard workers, uh, with this backdrop in mind. That uh, that right before this section, Jesus has already been talking about money. And so as we come to Matthew 20, uh, we see that he begins the parable with this sort of uh, common phrase that many parables start with, that the kingdom of heaven is like. And he begins to talk about this landowner who needs to hire workers for a vineyard. Um, and to understand it, I want to just give a little bit of context. We've talked a bit about kind of the, the empire and economy of empire, but just want to reiterate that at this time that, like most ancient societies, there was a very, very large uh, number of peasants, of um, kind of poor working class folks, and a very, very tiny minority of well-to-do landowners. And in this parable, um, you can go to the next slide, Liz. There's just a little art piece that will kind of help frame this. Um, there's, uh, you know, landowners who are in the very, very minority of society, um, who often are very wealthy, own land, and uh, are in this economy that is kind of dependent on and taking these uh, workers and kind of extracting from them, exploiting from them, um, using their labor. And these landlords were mainly known for being uh, absentee, like they were not super involved in the day-to-day -day, uh, workings of their farms, their estates, their vineyards, whatever. They um, usually had these managers, these middle people who, who kind of took care of things for them. Um, but we come to this parable, we hear about this vineyard owner, and um, and we we kind of keep this context of in mind that you know that that landowners often manipulated their day laborers, they kept their wages low, they hired as few workers as possible, um, and, and it was sort of a whole system that was set up for chronic unemployment and an oversaturation of poor day laborers. They were often um, walking around the marketplace trying to get work, 
And that's the backdrop of this story. And then Jesus opens and tells this parable. And, and knowing that context, knowing the backdrop, there would be a number of very surprising things that happen um, in this parable. Um, I, you can go to the next slide. First, it's in, interesting to note that as Jesus tells his parable, that in this story, that it's not actually like a manager or a middle person who goes out to the marketplace, like, like most landowners would use. It's actually the owner himself who's going out to hire workers. So that in itself would be surprising to this audience. Um, and then on top of that, there's an interesting thing that happens, you know, typically if you there's a sort of market of day laborers, this marketplace where you go to this center where um, people would be out standing around looking for work right and, and most, you know, people who own land who, who own a state would go and hire all the workers that they need for the day. They would go out, they would hire the people that they need, they would negotiate some kind of wages, um, and that would be the end of it, right? Um, but in this story, that's not what happens. <laughs> uh, the owner goes out, and early in the morning, he, he does kind of what would be expected. He finds some people to um, work, he agrees to pay them a denarian. Uh, a denarian is actually like a uh, a day's wage in that time, it's a living wage. And it's not an exorbitant amount of money, but it's a living wage, probably enough to feed a family for several days, okay? Um, so he goes out, he makes this agreement, uh, but then a very strange thing happens. Rather than going and getting these laborers and just having them work for the day, he goes back. He goes back at 9 a.m., he goes back at noon, he goes back at 3 p.m. And each time he goes, he has this sort of conversation. He sees the people standing around. It says standing around doing nothing. And, and really doing nothing isn't an, uh, a sign of them being like lazy. It's actually just that they haven't gotten work. Um, and the fact that they're standing is important because they're standing up. They're, they're, like, they're staying ready to go. They're staying ready to be picked to work. They're waiting to work. Um, and this owner continues to go back to the marketplace and he sees that these people haven't gotten work. They haven't gotten opportunity, that they, they need work. Um, and so he goes back one, two, three times. And, and at the, each of those times, he says, I'll pay you whatever is right. He doesn't even tell them exactly how much they're going to be paid. Um, but there must be some kind of trust, some kind of understanding. These, these workers go back. Um, they, they work this vineyard. And then the last time at 5 p.m. he goes, there's still people there. There's still people who need work. There's still these kind of poor, vulnerable workers who haven't gotten any work. And so he brings even more workers back to his field. And this last time, he doesn't even make a mention of payment. And all of this would already be pretty unconventional, that this owner is the one who's going out, that he's going multiple times. He's getting more and more workers. He probably is getting more workers than he actually needs. But at the end of the day, when it comes time to pay these workers, um, he does this strange and unexpected thing that he pays them first um, in reverse order. So like the people who are there all day long working are forced to see these people who've been working for one hour um, get their wage. And all of these people are getting paid the same amount, a living wage, a denarian, a living wage for one hour's work a living wage for three hours work, a living wage for five hours, for eight hours work, for a whole day of work, a living wage for all. And as they're paid, 
the people who there have been working longer, they begin to grumble because they're like, hey, we've, we've been working all day in the sun. We've worked longer. We should have, um, we should be paid more, right? We are more deserving. Uh, because they work longer and in their minds harder than others, they think their pay should be greater, which makes sense. Um, but it is important to note here that the problem with this situation isn't that these workers are getting underpaid. They were agreed um, to get paid a denarian and they got paid a denarian. So this, this vineyard owner isn't taking advantage of them. He's not underpaying them. The problem is that the other folks are getting in, in the minds of these workers, they're getting overpaid. Uh, they're getting a full day's wage without doing a full day's work. And so this, the phrase that Pastor Michael highlighted earlier um, happens, are you resentful because I am generous? Are you resentful because I am generous is a question that this owner asks. And we see in the story these kind of unexpected actions of the vineyard owner, these surprising, subversive things happening. And I, I think that this owner is actually sowing seeds of imagination for a different way of relating, a different way of being, a different kind of economy. Because instead of operating on this sort of maximum profit, hire as few workers as possible, pay them as little as possible, he's actually going, he's providing jobs, he's providing care. He goes out multiple times, five times to the marketplace to see, are there more people in need? Are there more people who need work? Are there more people who need to get paid? And he sees the needs of those in the marketplace and he continues to invite them to, pro to pro provide them with work, provide them with care, provide them with a living wage. And where these people are expecting exploitation, there is a living wage. Where people are expecting this meritocracy, a person's need is valued more than their productivity. Where people are expecting to be treated like cheap labor, they're being treated more like friends or family, people in need of work, of care, of a living wage. And this Landowner is creating sort of new forms of social relations that is based on subversive generosity. And we're left with this question. Do we encounter this subversive generosity with reception or with resentment? With reception or with resentment? And friends, I've been thinking about this parable all week. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of maybe some of the common ways that you might have heard this parable be interpreted, ways that scholars and theologians have interpreted this parable for generations. The church fathers interpreted this parable. There's been a lot, a lot of different ways to interpret this parable, a lot of debate around it, which I didn't really realize as I chose this passage. Um, you can go to the next slide. But I just wanted to present that maybe some of you have heard this parable interpreted in the sort of allegorical way, this allegorical reading. You know, the owner is God. Um, those who are working longer are those who are performing works. Um, those who come later are those who receive grace. Or maybe you heard this interpretation like the people who come first are the Jews. The people who come later are like the Gentiles. Um, and that view actually led to some really anti-Semitic views actually. Um, but there's this kind of view that the Jews are bitter and grumbling while this welcome is being extended to the Gentiles. Maybe you heard some of these different, uh, different interpretations. Um, but when we look at this parable, I wanna present kind of another reading of this text. Uh, a, a reading that presents a version of this subversion of the system of exploitation. Um, 
you can go to the next slide, Liz. I want to ask, like, what if Jesus isn't sharing this parable here just to make a theological statement about grace versus works or the teachers of the law versus the sinners and outcasts or the Jews versus the Gentiles or rewards in heaven or this all these eschatological, eschatological realities. But what if there's actually an economic side to this parable? Considering that, you know, this passage comes right after uh, Matthew 19, he's telling this rich ruler to sell all his possessions, to give to the poor, to come follow him. Um, what if Jesus is actually continuing this, this critique um, and this sort of expanding of imagination around um, subversive economies in this passage? What if the vineyard owner is giving us permission to explore the potential of different ways of relating around money and wages and work? Um, I think many of us, like, like those Jesus was speaking to in this parable, we've kind of lived with this weight of unjust economies for so long that we don't know how to imagine anything different, right? I don't know if people feel this. I feel this. Many, some, maybe some of you are looking, waiting for work or trying to um, care for your family, provide for your family, live in the Bay Area, <laughs> try to buy a house in the Bay Area, all these things, these financial realities, um, the, the weights that we experience. We've, we've come to normalize a lot of things that actually um, lead to despair, that tamper our imagination, right? We have normalized the lack of a living wage. We've normalized chronic underemployment or unemployment. We've normalized profit being prioritized over people. We've normalized the poor and the vulnerable being forced to like compete with each other. Um, we've normalized the rich getting to just be unlimited in their greed. We've normalized the powerful using that power to dictate the actual value of another human being. And these realities have become so normalized that it's hard to imagine anything different. That in a world of greed, in a world of exploitation, generosity and goodness feel subversive. But I wonder if this parable is just offering us the gift of possibility. This landowner who does these unexpected, these surprising, these creative, these imaginative things is offering us a different way, is saying no to the oppressive economy of empire and planting seeds for something a little bit different. And I wanna invite us into that joyful reimagining of a just economy to examine what might our place be in that reimagining. You can go to the next slide. Um, for me, this past week, as we've been talking about this, I, I've actually been, um, thinking about co-housing again. And some of you, if you know me for a lot, know me for a while, you know that Michael and I have thought about co-housing. We pre I've talked about it in sermons in the past. I haven't actually talked about it for a while. Um, it hasn't really been on my mind until this past week. Um, but some of you might know that this, uh, for around four years, um, we co-owned a large house in Berkeley with two other families. And we lived in community with this property, um, this large house that also had a rental unit attached. Um, this house in Berkeley. And for some reason this week, like through the Discord, um, <laughs> there was some chatter on Discord about housing that um, was also coming at the time where I was prepping for the sermon. And I just began to think again um, about what it means to steward property in a way that blesses others than simply just adding to my personal net worth, right? 
those of us who live in the Bay Area, we know how big of an issue housing is, how unlivable um, this place can feel. But I was just starting to think again, like what would it look like for those of us who own property to think about affordable housing, to think about housing teachers, to think about supporting migrants and refugees and new arrivals as they transition to this country. And Amy Beth is going to talk a little bit later in the announcements about um, an opportunity to do accompaniment ministry with new arrivals to this country. And one of the greatest need for new arrivals and asylum seekers and refugees is always housing, always, always housing, right? Um, what does it mean to think about honoring indigenous communities and the first inhabitants of this land as we think about um, properties, we think about uh, home ownership, quote unquote, right? And I, I was thinking about this and hope that our church can continue to have conversations about this, about creative, subversive, imaginative models of stewarding housing and thinking about our relationship to land and to property. And, and most of you even know that um, our microhousing project uh, on our church property is something that is addressing some of this as well. And maybe for some of us, housing isn't something that we have even capacity to think about. Maybe it's something that we're, it's not relevant to us. Um, it's a privilege that we are not afforded. Um, but I wanna invite some of us into other forms of joyful reimagining of just economies. Maybe it's our relationship to the labor movements that are happening all across the country right now, all throughout the summer. We know there's been a bunch of different labor movements and strikes that are happening. And what does it mean to support just wages and living wages and equitable, equitable pay um, and just treatment, honorable, dignifying treatment of all workers? How do we take part in that economy, building that economy? Maybe some of us are called to reimagine our relationship with our own resources. Maybe it's not property, but maybe it's our own wealth. Um, maybe it's our own assets, our, our networks, our inheritance, our education, uh, our, a business that we own, our position at work, whatever privileges, whatever resources that we might have. Or maybe you've been part of and want to continue to be part of our, our church reimagining what it means to, to use our resources, to use our surplus, to use our budget, to use our building, to embody the subversive generosity of God. And maybe some of us, I just want to acknowledge that maybe some of us are like the wor workers in the marketplace at 5 p.m. still waiting, still waiting for provision for kindness, to be treated well, to be given work, to be given a dignified living wage. And maybe, just maybe you are called to just keep standing, um, to choose to imagine and hope and wait for something good and generous to happen, to trust that it is possible. Family of God, wherever you are this morning, I, I just want to say that the Spirit of God is inviting us into a joyful reimagination of a just economy, a subversive, generous economy. And I hope that we can continue to both dream and to act together. I want to say this is the start of a conversation. We've had conversations in the past. We've talked about money in the past with our Lazarus at the Gate group. We've talked about housing and different things and want to continue that conversation. And this owner of this vineyard this week for me was bringing this back to the forefront. That a different way is possible. That a different way is always possible. And maybe you're not sure, maybe you're not convinced, that's okay. But I hope 
that we will continue to remember that Jesus is turning things upside down. The realm of God is here to disturb and subvert the ways of empire. And I hope and I pray that as we began to imagine a different way, we will also enact it in our world. Friends, may we follow Jesus into this invitation to imagine a just economy, to take part in it, to make it possible. And may we come to embody and reflect the subversive generosity of our God together. Amen. Amen.